Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Hey, we're back. Episode 12, Triple Threat Theater. I'm Jared Axberg. That would make me Ryan Miller. Hi, Milzy. Hey, Dax, what's up? Oh, we're back at it again. <laughs> Dirty dozen. Mm. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that anyone would guess what spy fi meant? I doubt it. Um, unless they've seen it written instead of just hearing it. <laughs> Interesting. I even right up until uh, I had to say it when we revealed the title last episode. Like, I knew what I wanted it to sound like, but uh, was kind of questioning whether or not uh, it was too much of a stretch. Oh, because you would say Spify? <laughs> it feels like it probably should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Doesn't... theme for this episode, Spify, just because it sounds better. Uh, but not SPY, it's SPI, which is short for Spielberg. Fi. That would be three science fiction films made by Steven Spielberg. Your friend and mine. Mm-hmm. How many, let's real quick, like, how many sci-fi movies do you think the man has? Well, I was thinking about this. Um, so the three movies that we're going to be talking about this episode are Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., and A.I., Artificial Intelligence. Um, now, those first two involve or are focused around aliens almost would have made more sense to do those two in War of the Worlds. But we we blew it. (laughs) Not that I really care, uh, but, you know, that did occur to me. But, yeah, I mean, he's done those. Uh, Jurassic Park is a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, War of the Worlds, Minority Report. Ready Player One. Ready Player One. Fair amount. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's always spy-fi, too. True. It seems like the man had a preoccupation with uh, aliens early on. Um, I'd say so. Just from, I mean, obviously E.T. and Close Encounters were early films of his uh, and are like both like intellectual properties created by him, not like Mm -hmm. adapted from other places even. And I mean, we can get into it further later, but, uh, you know, like the (laughs) where the idea for E.T. came from was apparently like a a childhood imaginary friend of his that was like a a little alien that he would pal around with up Mm -hmm. in his mind. And yep. Yeah, and just like the fact that he wanted to make a movie about Project Blue Book and stuff like that is, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> that that one's new to me. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I, this is all stuff that I learned just while reading about him in the last couple of days. But, um, you know, like nowadays, like, I don't know, like if I, when I think of Steven Spielberg, once upon a time, I think I would have thought of him more as like a, like an action adventure sci-fi kind of director because you know jaws is like you know a thrilling movie a thriller um close encounters sci-fi et sci-fi the um uh 
Indiana Jones films are, you know, they dabble with like sci-fi concepts and they're like fantasy adventure movies and mm-hmm. like Jurassic Park is a classic. And, you know, in there he would put out stuff like um, Saving Private Ryan or uh, Schindler's, List. Schindler's List. But it definitely feels like uh, these days he's more of like a dramatic director. And, I mean, he did just put out Ready Player One, um, and it wasn't that long ago he did the BFG, which is like a fantasy kids movie. Mm-hmm. But um, more so these days, I feel like I think of him as the guy who made, like, The Post and Bridge of Spies and stuff like that. I'd say he's always going to be a genre director in my heart. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I like, you know, thinking about him classically, it just feels like he did more of that stuff in the past, but, you know. Yeah. He, as I said, though, he still, you know, just came out with Ready Player One, for example. True, true. You know, for every war horse, there's a, you know, <laughs> a BFG or something to uh-huh. to pair with it. He's well-rounded, that guy. Yeah. Well, Millsy, what is your history with these three movies? Uh, I had seen them all before. Uh-huh. Um E.T. I definitely watched when I was younger because I remember my grandmother had it on VHS and when we would go to her house, we would watch that a fair amount of the time um, or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is like an old uh, like musical dance movie. <laughs> which, it's quite the two different movies there, yeah, Grandma. Which, which I have a weird connection to. Also, uh, The Birdcage she was a big fan of, which is a movie that I love. I was gonna say that's why you love that movie so much. I, it has to be, yeah. That's that's like how I originally saw that movie was my grandmother had the VHS, and I think my grandmother was a big fan of like Robin Williams, and I don't know if I've ever seen her laugh harder than when she used to watch The Birdcage. I like it. Yeah. Um, also, you know, like that grandmother and I and my, like my mom and my sister all went to see. There's something about Mary in the theater together, but. Um, yeah, E.T., definitely a movie I know that I saw when I was younger. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I'm not sure if I saw that until like seven or eight years ago for the first time. I have no recollection of watching it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And A.I., I saw like back when it came out, and I think that's the last time I had seen it until now. Mm. Interesting. Yourself? Uh, pretty similar. I mean, certainly saw E.T. growing up. It's been a good probably 25 years since I've seen it, (laughs) if I had to guess. I mean, it's been that long. I don't think this was a movie we ever owned or, you know, never had on VHS or taped over from HBO or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I remember it pretty well. Uh, Close Encounters, not quite in the last eight years like yourself, but I'm going to say I was young-ish maybe in high school when I first saw that one. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I can't remember, but I, I know it's been a, been a while. I may have seen it earlier, but I, like I say, I have no recollection of seeing it when I was mm-hmm. younger. Um, I just know that I definitely watched it like seven or eight years ago because I can go back and look on Letterboxd and see my review. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, that's yeah. That's why I should be letterboxing my whole life because I have such a bad memory that at least I'd have something to look back to. Let me tell you, one of my <laughs> one of my favorite things to do because I've been using Letterbox like routinely logging every single thing that I watch. 
uh, for, I don't know, the past like seven or eight years. I forget exactly when it came on the scene. But even before Letterboxd was around, um, for like three years prior to that website existing, I actually started keeping a form of a Letterboxd diary just by myself, like for myself. I had mm-hmm. like a Word document and every movie I watched, I would write down along with the day that I watched it. I don't know why I started doing this aside from the fact that I'm an anal retentive nerd. But mm-hmm. then so when I discovered Letterboxd, I just went back in and I plugged in all of those those viewings. So I have like a um, like a list of all the movies I saw back through like 2009 or 2010 or something like that. Wow. Um, and one of my favorite things to do. Because I have, like, I try to write a review for pretty much everything, especially if I've never seen it before, even if it's something short, and put a star rating on everything. One of my favorite things to do is just, like, go back and look through my diary and be like, what is this? I have no recollection of watching this. Like, some random film from, like, eight years ago. And then, like, I can read a review written by me that I have no recollection of writing for a movie I could have sworn I'd never seen. Well, this is what happens when you watch 250 movies a year, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's an interesting, fun experiment to do. I mean, if you watched any more movies and tried to remember them all, you'd wake up one morning and forget how to drive, or <laughs> you know, you, you wouldn't know where you were or something. Fair enough. The human brain can only hold so much milk. Oh, I know. Trust me, I know. With all the comic and movie knowledge I have up there, that's why, like, I just there's no room for like music i mm-hmm. like even songs that i like most of the time i can't tell you who they're made by or what albums they're on um there's definitely no room for politics up there so i don't even try <laughs> well i would say just keep doing what you're doing because you you know me there'll be random days where you'll just get a text from me at 10:37 a.m. on a thursday you know asking you you know what issue of uh, Batman: The Dark Knight did uh, Chris Pacello draw, or something? <laughs> and you'll you'll know it immediately and tell me. So yeah, yeah, we have a we have a good symbiotic relationship <laughs> where you ask me questions and I can give you the answer <laughs> immediately. immediately. <laughs> Fair enough. I was going to say, not that I have my own version of um, Letterboxed, but for a long time. A very long time. I saved every movie ticket from when I went to the movies. Saved as in you don't do it anymore? Well, I'll get to that. <laughs> okay. So this is probably going... I still have them. I have a very large pile, but it's going back to probably like 2002 is when I started. Mm-hmm. And come to find out, probably in the last couple of years, maybe the last time I moved, I went through them. And unfortunately... As nice as those little tickets look, the ink doesn't hold up for nothing. <laughs> yeah. So there's quite a few that I couldn't even tell you what they were, sadly. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, someday I'll, you know, I don't even know what I thought. Maybe like, you know, <laughs> have a big giant frame in a movie room or something with, oh, look at all these tickets. And then it's like, <laughs> I couldn't even, you know, bring myself to throw out the pile just because I had been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, it seems like a lot of theaters don't, or at least the ones around here don't do those kind of old school tickets anymore. Get, some give a lot of paper tickets and just like receipt paper even. Yeah. Which yeah. is kind of a bummer. I actually do the same thing. Um, 
<laughs> when I was younger, I used to keep my movie tickets and I just had them all like uh, I would like poke a hole in them and then like keep them on like a key ring almost like hanging on my cork board in my bedroom when I was younger. And I remember one day have just looking at the 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 ring and thinking to myself, why am I saving these and just throwing them away? Mm. <laughs> and then about about 10 years ago, uh, I saw uh, Edgar Wright posted a uh, a picture on Twitter of his like he collects all of his movie tickets and mm-hmm. he had just dumped them out on the floor and took a picture of the pile and was like here's 10 years worth of movie tickets and that day I was like oh man I used to do that I should do that again so for like the past 10 years I've been keeping all of mine oh. as well I think I'll have to do that and post it on our Instagram <laughs> I used to speaking of really nerdy nerdy anal retentive things uh, the first couple years after I saw that picture from Edgar Wright, um, I would like lay them all out and take a picture of them every year and post them on like Facebook or Twitter mm-hmm. or whatever social media I was using at the time and mm. just be like, here's my year's worth of tickets. But I haven't done that in the last couple of years. I still have them all, though. Did you have any issue with the ink not holding up that you can think of? I mean, I haven't looked through all the old ones. Like after a year is through, I put them in an envelope and I haven't looked at them. Again, and then you and then you mail them to yourself so that they're <laughs> saved in time forever. I put them in a lockbox that I then bury in the yard. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, just for the sake of me, just check one of these days. I'm okay. just curious. <laughs> I'll get back to you. I'll have to bust. I'll bust out my pile one of these days. <laughs> Fair enough. But anyways, Spielberg. I digress. Shall we get into it? Uh, might as well. All right. Well, Mills, up first. Yep, movie numero Cl- uno. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yep, from 1977. you having headaches, migraines? Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus. An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses. Yeah. Démangeaisons, des allergies. Do you have hives? Do you have uh, allergies? Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps. You're burning uh, on your face and on your body. Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? Written and directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Which is unusual for him, I guess, writing uh-huh. and directing. Uh-huh. Um, it's weird to think, like, a lot of times, I guess it's it's not that unusual, but I feel like a lot of the directors that I really, like, follow and, and uh, like, enjoy or idolize in some way, like a Tarantino, are guys who write their own scripts. But I guess it's pretty typical, more often than not, for just, like, even big-name directors to just, you know, have a script written for them. I would say that's like 95% accurate yeah. that the, like the writer director combo is, isn't that prevalent. Yeah. I guess it's just weird to think, I don't know why this thought is coming to me just now, but it's weird to think that someone like Steven Spielberg, it's like, you know, I know that Michael Crichton wrote the book Jurassic Park, but I couldn't tell you who wrote the movie, but it's like a huge movie. It's like a, in my opinion, like a, a time honored classic uh, at this point and like a mm-hmm. great film and I can tell you, you know, any day of the week who directed it and half the stars, but no idea who wrote it. 
And I mean, that's pretty, pretty important if you think about it. Yeah. But it's kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, the director is just, you know, so important to the overall production, I guess, mm-hmm. that they get so much more of the the spotlight. Even like, because I think about this, like sometimes when I've even done it myself, like trash a movie or love a movie without giving like proper regards to who wrote it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like people can be quick to trash a movie and blame it all on the director. Yeah. Which it's, if you think about it, it's, it's gotta be hard to break it down to who's responsible for what. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times it probably is the writing or, you know, the story or the dialogue or whatever, but yeah, just, um, it's something I never really thought about in terms of Steven Spielberg. I guess with someone like him, you think about him as being like, Probably he's probably the most like household name of directors like living today, mm-hmm. uh, just because he's been doing it for so long, and you know he's got movies like Jaws and ET and Indiana Jones under his belt, um, and it's just weird to think of like the auteur director, mm-hmm. but like it's it would seem like part of being an auteur would be like you know crafting your stories, and I'm sure that he has a lot of input. And like decision making when it comes to like the stories he's going to tell because he's the kind of guy that can pick and choose his projects. But the fact that he's not typically writing them, and this is one of the few examples of him actually writing his own script. Yeah, I mean, this probably, like you said earlier, would be like a prime example of like what he was into at the time since he went as far as to write it and direct it. Mm-hmm. This guy likes aliens. Yeah. And I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, I was reading that uh like he had the idea for this movie um or, or like a version of this movie and uh I think a studio was going to give him like two and a half million at the time and uh like that he figured wasn't going to be enough budget to do the special effects for the movie mm-hmm. and then Jaws came out and all of a sudden studios were like throwing money at him to do whatever he wanted oh. so Like, part of the reason that this movie has, like, the good special effects it does from that era is because Jaws basically opened every door in the world for him back in, like, 75 or 76 when that came out. Right. Which is great, too, when you think about how it's pretty famous that how bad the on-set work was with the (laughs) animatronics and the shark. Yeah. How, like, limited... In scope, it ended up being just because the thing would malfunction on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But then how great that works out for the actual movies. So. Yeah, seriously. So, yeah. Movie magic, man. I think it uh, parlays into this movie because the, I think the effects hold up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find them to be rather impressive in Close Encounters. They do interesting things with special effects in this era, like... Not every not every movie, but, you know, something like Star Wars, all the effects are, like, big and bright and right in your face. But in a movie like this, and, I mean, this is supposed to be a little more of, like, a mystery suspense film in addition yeah. to, like, a special effects wonder from the time. But a lot of things, like the spaceships, up until the end, and even at the end, you don't really get a great idea of what they look like. It's mostly just, like, blown out lights zipping through mm-hmm. the sky in different formations. Which are nice because it's like you can follow along to get an idea of the silhouette based on the light patterns to a point. Yeah. And I even like the way that it's done 
because I mean, I mean, I don't know if it was a decision on Spielberg's part to make the spaceship so vague looking. I'm kind of assuming it is, but it's just like, you know, when people talk about the first alien film and how people would walk out of the theater and still not even really have a clear idea of what the alien looked like because it's like it's this dark, slimy thing mm-hmm. and it's always like shrouded in darkness for the most part. And um, it's just like a confusing visual and I think that that kind of works for, like, the mystery and the mystique of this. Like, if everything was just, like, a flying saucer, like a Mars attack spaceship, I don't think it would be as interesting and uh, have as much, like, awe-inspiring wow yeah. factor kind of no, to that's it. That's a great point because it's certainly, I think, having all, almost all, actually, I think every bit of alien interaction is at night. Mm-hmm. In the movie. Oh, and into that as well. in addition to it being dark... Uh, something that I realized watching this and E.T. pretty much back to back, Steven Spielberg loves smoke. Oh. Just there is constantly smoke or fog in like every scene, especially outdoors. Like every night is the foggiest, smokiest night in this and E.T. And like anytime you're like seeing the aliens at the end of the film when they come out of the ship, it's like brightly backlit so that it like obscures the aliens in a bit of shadow on the front that you're seeing. And then there's just smoke everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily notice unless, you know, like I said, watching the two movies back to back, I was just like, God damn, this man must've gone through so many fucking fog machines when making this movie. See now that's in, and that's like a fun thing when you think about like what a director is doing on set, like of the dozen things they're doing at any time. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably pretty sure Spielberg's the one that's like, hey, crank the smoke, please. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just him, though. Like, that was a thing during this time period, because a lot of times when you're dealing with creature effects, you know, Mm -hmm. the practical effects, like, back at this time period, you want to kind of try and hide it and obscure it a little bit to, like, Mm -hmm. hide the seams. Now There's a a lot of smoke in Pumpkinhead, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I know that uh, that's also a Ridley Scott thing. Not just in his, like, monster movies or whatever, but um, he, especially early in his career, like when he did Alien and Blade Runner, everything was fucking hazy and foggy and smoky. It also just, it makes light more interesting to play with, I think. Like, one of the parts that really made me realize how much smoke there was in E.T. is early in the movie when Elliot is outside like sleeping with the flashlight on and it's just the beam has just like smoke spiraling through it like a uh, like a fucking lava lamp or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, oh, and yeah. it just makes that stuff more interesting looking it diffuses yeah, light and yeah it's so it, it adds a cool visual style and kind of makes it feel of the time because I feel like these days with CG you don't have to hide anything anymore so you don't see that stuff as much yeah, no, that's true. You definitely don't see that. And if, if you do, it's added in post, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. So bring on that smoke. <laughs> but uh, just in general, like, what are your feelings about Close Encounters? I enjoy it. I like the cast quite a bit. Overall, I think I just like how the entire movie is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Which um, I I was going to ask. I think that's a thing that you might not like about it, based on conversations we kind of have about movies, even recently. But I don't know. You tell me. 
Uh, I don't have a problem with the ambiguity, and I kind of like that in a movie like this because it's like they're dealing with the unknown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, I don't know. I do feel like a lot of the time these days with modern movies, I'm left wanting by, like, the end of a film. And it's not necessarily because I'm confused or anything. It just a lot of times these days it feels like a bit of a cop-out. Whereas the story that's being told in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, Roy, uh, yeah, Richard Dreyfus almost said Roy Scheider. <laughs> Richard mm. Dreyfus gets on the spaceship and he's off to parts unknown. And you don't find out where he's going or what the aliens' intentions are or where they come from or anything like that. But I don't feel like that's important to the film. Like the point where you reach the conclusion to his story of discovery is when he and that other woman are on the mountaintop and they see the UFO and it's like, it's real, it's tangible, it's there. And they right. walk down and they meet the aliens. Like, yeah. After, after that, like everything else is gravy, but like it would almost be like if they made it to the mountain and you never saw if the aliens were really there or something like that. Or I don't know, just a lot. Of, I feel like a lot of modern films, I that's my critique of the endings, like when it comes to a lot of horror and sci fi stuff these days. But mm-hmm. this yeah. film, I don't have that problem. That um, makes sense the way you put it. I'll tell you what my biggest problem with this movie is. And I had forgotten that this soured me so much the last time I watched it. After I watched the movie, I went back and I read my old review from the last time I saw it, like I was saying I I sometimes do. Mm -hmm. And I had the same reaction this time and then went back and realized that eight years ago I had the same problem. Does it bug you that he just abandons his fucking family? Yes. I mean, I understand that, you know, he's got these visions and he's got to go and like he's he's got to see this thing and find out what it is and if it's real. And like, you know, his he's crazy and his family like leaves like we're going to my sisters or whatever. And then he continues on his journey. I'm like, cool with all that. But the minute that he just like doesn't think of them for a second and mm-hmm. just gets on that spaceship to leave Earth and maybe never come back and abandon his kids and his wife who think that he's a fucking nut job. Right. I just, it like makes me dislike his character all of a sudden at the end. And I find that it really kind of ruins the ending for me. Hmm. Um, I was going to say, I noticed it kind of similarly this time I watched it. Cause I was thinking as it's happening where, um, Terry Gar takes the kids and takes off. Mm-hmm. You never, you never see them again. Never. It, and he never even like, to my recollection talks about him again. Like, no. I, I understand that he's like, there's this thing in his head and he's got to figure it out and solve it. But mm-hmm. like, it would have, I don't know. Like, there's other people that are going with the aliens off to parts unknown. Like, a, kind of along with what I was saying, like, the end of his story of discovery, as far as I feel as the viewer, is when he sees the thing, he gets to the top of the mountain, he finds out that it's real, and he's witness to this happening. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. In my mind, it makes him kind of an asshole that he's just like, oh, yeah, I'll go with the aliens. See, the only thing I can connect with that, which doesn't absolve him of anything, but before everything goes down, when you like first see him with his family and he's like playing with the trains with the kid and then like the other kids like wiling out in that pack and play or whatever mm-hmm. and the whole thing. And uh, his wife's like getting on him because she's like, all his stuff is like taking over her table and 
she gave him that whole room to have his trains, you know, that whole part. Yep. It's almost like that's like the first sign of that he's kind of, you know, selfish. Yeah. A man at the very, child, perhaps. At, at the very least. Mm-hmm. So. But then you have scenes that, like when he's in the bathroom brushing his teeth and his kids come to play that joke on him and they like slap him on the ass with the paddle. Uh-huh. And. Like, you'd almost expect him to turn around and be mad, but he, like, turns around and he's, like, playful and playing with them. And it's just, like, to just leave your fucking family like that with, like, I see what you're saying. There is a little bit of, like, instigation potentially for it, like, to give you at least the shadow of a doubt. Potentially. Like, everything is perfect with that family. But if nothing else, it does not go far enough for me to feel like he's justified in just leaving like, because you yeah. think about it, like, you know, the government and like all these people are going to cover this shit up. Like they were trying to keep anybody from seeing it in the first place. And only when uh, his character and the woman that he's with, whose son was taken, make it to the top of the mountain and their aliens are there. Are they like, OK, well, you're here now. You know, the harm is already done. Like the government is going to cover this shit up. His wife is never going to find out what happened to him. Right. Like he just fucking lost his mind. Mm -hmm. The last time she saw him, he was throwing fucking soil through the kitchen window. And then she's going to come home and find that giant fucking dirt mound that he built in the house. And she's never going to see him again. They're going to give her some bullshit story about fucking swamp gas and (laughs) weather balloons. (laughs) And he is just in the wind. I don't know. She's stuck with that. Dirt and mashed potato mound. Yeah, it just, yep. it honestly, like, sours me on the end of the movie. You know, a different, I'd be curious to see what the the different movie is someone would write and make of, like, what's her point of view. <laughs> you know, like, what, what what happens with her life after she bolts out of there and runs them over with the car? <laughs> yeah. All I can, it doesn't sour the ending for me, because, like I said, I noticed it, I noticed all of this as I was watching it this time for sure. And I had the idea of like, yeah, he doesn't even think or mention the kids. It's like he doesn't even think twice. And f- the way it works for me in my head is just that as harsh as it sounds to say, it's like they're better off without him and he's better off doing what he does. Because I feel like because of what I said about where they were showing his that side of his personality, it was going to go yeah. in a negative direction anyways. I think that you can make an argument for that. Um, I don't feel like the movie gives a strong enough impression that that is likely no, for me I to mean, buy you, it. Yeah, but. You, you definitely have to, you know, pull some teeth on that one. But yeah. That's how, you know, one thing works for me and doesn't for you. Yeah, even the fact that, like, when they're on the run together, he and the uh, the other woman, like, that he just randomly meets on the road uh, at one point earlier in the movie, like, they, they he kisses her. And even then, I'm just like, that feels weird. Like, to just all of a sudden at that point in the movie, like, the two of them are united by the common theme or the common thread of we are both having these visions and he needs to find these things to, like, justify his insanity and she's looking for her kid. So they're on this journey together because of a shared reason. Mm -hmm. But then just to all of a sudden they kiss in one scene like to what what does that serve the passion Millsy, i guess i don't know <laughs> uh, i don't know it, yeah i don't know i mean that could 
that could easily have been left out. Those are issues that keep me from really loving the movie, I honestly feel. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, I don't think I ever am 100% in love with this movie, but I find it really entertaining watching the journey through most of it. Yeah. And, like, you know, the alien stuff at the end maybe goes on a little too long uh, for me, but then, mm. yeah, it's just, I mean, that final scene is, like, 20 minutes of just, like, music notes being played and then aliens coming in and out of the ship and <laughs> yeah yeah i i in fact dig all that just because it's so ambiguous this is a movie where i feel like i would love to be able to like wipe the memory of watching it every time i watch it so it's like the first time all over again mm-hmm. because I, I forget the feeling of watching it where it's like you know what the hell is he building in this kitchen? Like, why is he throwing all, why is he breaking all his own windows? And You know, like the whole thing. I think it, it does a real good job of laying out a huge mystery. Even though it gives you the alien, it gives you flying saucers mm-hmm. almost immediately. Yeah. So it's like, it takes that, that bit of the mystery away that, okay, this is what's causing it. But now what's all this underlying structure they're making? Yeah. And that I really enjoy. And I think the payoff is there. Here's a question that I, I'm sure that Steven Spielberg and company never intended for anybody to ask. When he builds that giant, like, mountain out of dirt, why has he got to do it in the house? Like, just to make him even crazier? Like, it's made primarily out of dirt and, like, chicken wire mm-hmm. and trash cans and plants that he found outside. Why not build it in the yard? Why throw all that shit in the kitchen? Because it's just not crazy enough. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Pretty kind much. of my problem with something like yeah. that is it feels like the only explanation I, as the viewer, can come up with is something that breaks the fourth wall of the movie. Because mm. it just I makes mean, logical sense that if he was going to build that thing, he would do it outside where all the stuff is. Like, why bother shoveling all that dirt in through the window? I don't know. Weird things that probably no one ever intended for no. the viewer to think about, but for some reason I Maybe. do. <laughs> You know, for the for the plot, he'd never see it on the TV if he wasn't building it right in front of the thing. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just because it started with his mashed potato mound on the kitchen table. <laughs> He's like, I have to build on this, you well, know? It really started with the uh, shaving cream in his hand. Well, true, true. But I digress. Mm. Um, I found this interesting. I read that uh, they actually tested to try and do the spaceships with CG. Really? Imagine that. Like 1975, 1976 CGI. What does that even look like? I have no idea, but I'd love to see it. Uh, Spielberg said that it was a combination of uh, it just didn't look very good along with it would have been too expensive to do. But man, Mm. just the fact that they were even considering using computer-generated imagery Mm -hmm. for spaceships in a movie that came out in 1977 is fascinating to me. Well, well, that... I would love to see that. But even even so, this movie's 42 years old. Older than both of us. Mm-hmm. I still couldn't tell you how they did it. <laughs> a lot of miniatures. Yeah. Um, like, like how they do those things. Yeah. Like you've, there was plenty of times, which, you know, it's broken record at this point with the, the love of the practical effects. But there's so many bits where it's just so much fun to watch to see like, Someone had to do that. Someone had to rig that mailbox to open and close on its own, you know? Mm-hmm. Or um, even the part where 
there, Richard Dreyfus is like crashes the truck and then the like three ships like come up the highway yeah. right near the people. Like, I don't know how they did that. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. And I love it. Yeah. I'm assuming it was some form of compositing, but I, I do not know how they do that sure. stuff either. Right. Um, especially back before you could just do it with a computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but uh the uh um the me- the mothership, like the the model that they built for it, apparently is actually in I think the Smithsonian. Oh really? And you can go see it. Yeah, oh. I saw a picture of it online. And I thought it was neat, uh you know, Spielberg and Lucas being friends and all this stuff coming out out around the same time. Uh, the mothership was designed by Ralph McQuarrie, who did like all oh. the designs for the Star Wars Star movies. Star Wars, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and it, oh man, like I was saying earlier, like it, it, you kind of can't really tell what the ships look like because of all the blown out lights and everything, and how dark it is most of the time. Mm-hmm. But man, when you see that miniature of the mothership. It is so much more complicated than I thought it was. Oh, yeah. It's got all those little antennas and everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but so I thought that cool. was really cool, cool that he was a part of this movie also. Yeah. Well, it's, I can dig it. Um, I guess quickly before we move on, one or two other people I want to mention from the cast. Uh, the translator, played by Bob Balaban. Um, are, oh, your boy Bob Balaban. Yeah. Are you a Bala fan? Of course. <laughs> um. I will always think of him primarily as the television executive from, I think, season three of Seinfeld. Um, All right. Were you a Seinfeld fan in the day? No, or? I was not. I want to say I've never it's, been a sitcom guy, so. I mean, there's few that I really get on board with, but Seinfeld I have always loved. Uh, I want to say season three, maybe it was season four. Uh, they do a storyline because, you know, the whole joke about Seinfeld was it's a show about nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the show, Jerry plays a comedian named Jerry Seinfeld. And uh, oh, really? yeah, a TV executive within the show comes to him and is like, hey, we thought you were really funny. Like, come and have a meeting with us sometime and maybe we, we can make a sitcom together. So, like, it's very meta within the show. Mm-hmm. And Bob Balaban plays the, like, very quiet, monotone, serious, man-a-few-words, like, network exec that um, the George Costanza character just does not get along with at all. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. like, every time I see Bob Balaban, I immediately think of that guy. I like it. And uh, also, I had to do a double take and look on IMDb just to be sure. But did you catch Lance Henriksen in this movie? Oh, God, no. At the end, when they're like all there watching the spaceships and everything, mm-hmm. um, and it's just like constantly cutting away to different like scientists all standing in crowds, ooing and aahing at the aliens and all. There's one shot that focuses on young Lance Henriksen. It's like a slight upshot, and it's like he's the only person prominently in the frame. And they even named him in the cast Robert, but to the best of my <laughs> knowledge, is not in the movie anywhere else. Really, but there is something cut a line entirely. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, had to, had to. But yeah, I like I say, I saw him and I was like, was that who I thought it was? And I looked on IMDb and damned if it wasn't Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen as Robert. (laughs) Yes, that memorable performance as Robert. Mm. No lines, just stares for like three seconds. (laughs) It's a good casting choice. Yeah. So. All right. All right. Anything else to say about Close Encounters? No, I feel like we've covered a lot. All right. Uh, Shall we move on to movie number two? Yes, please. 
E.T. the Extraterrestrial from 1982. E.T. Home phone. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. He wants to call somebody. What's all this shit? E.T. phone home. My God, he's talking. Oh. E.T. phone home? E.T. phone home. And they'll come. Come. While, like I said, I saw this when I was younger, I, w- I don't think I would have classified this as like a childhood favorite of mine or something I really held near and dear to my heart, despite having seen it when I was young. Mm-hmm. What about you? Like you said, you hadn't seen this in a long time, so I'm I hadn't assuming seen it's a long time. kind of the same for you. I mean, yeah, I know f- certainly I'd seen it multiple times as a kid, but it was, like I said, it wasn't one we owned just not something I've always liked aliens and sci-fi, but this one just wasn't, wasn't anything huge for me personally. Yeah. I understand its merits. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a huge movie. It was the highest grossing film for a long, a long time. A decade. I think, and, yeah. Until Jurassic Park. I think. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. He beat himself. Hey, that's all right. And then Jim Cameron did it. And you know, a few years later, Mm-hmm. It's funny, though. I was reading about that as well. Uh, so when the movie came out, because one of the stories you always hear about E.T., since I and I know you as well are huge fans of John Carpenter's The Thing, oh, is yeah. that that movie came out a couple months after E.T. And who knows if this actually had anything to do with it, but people like to say that The Thing's poor performance at the time was because it was such like a dark, scary alien movie and everybody just wanted like cutesy, fun aliens because yeah. E.T. came out a couple months earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh movie came out in June 1982. Uh, it was number one for six straight weeks and then stayed in theaters through the beginning of the following year. Wow. And apparently during that time would bounce around and like every now and then it would just appear back at number one at the box office again. And so it came out in June and there was at least one week in that December where it was number one again. Holy shit. Yeah. Um. So I think uh, worldwide it made $619 million in its original run, and uh, it beat Star Wars was the previous record holder for uh, highest box office. I mean, do you think that's like a billion dollars in today's money? Oh, surely. I have to Probably, imagine. Probably, right? Yeah. I mean, 30, 37 years ago? I mean, that's more than halfway to a billion already, and yeah, that's yeah. that's close to 40 years ago. I have to imagine that's a billion-dollar movie. Wow. I mean, it's made more than that in re-releases and all, but the original theatrical run was over 600 mil. I mean, is it safe to say, like, well, is this what made Spielberg, like, the superstar director? Like, Jaws was big. Yeah. And Close Encounters was big, but... I mean, I have to... Is this the universal appeal, is this movie? I think that's definitely part of it, um... I, I just think that it's like 
you know, obviously there's other movies in between like Sugarland Express and but Close Encounters was a pretty big hit as well. But you've got like Jaws, you've got E.T., you've got Indiana Jones, you know, that right there, those couple of movies in like a decade's time or whatever. That's that's a hell of a track record. And like all big, memorable, beloved, time honored movies uh, again, with other stuff in between. And then, you know, he comes along just when maybe, you know, he was losing a little steam as far as like the huge blockbusters goes and puts out uh, Jurassic Park, which, as we already said, was then the highest grossing film of all time. The same year that he puts out Schindler's List, which is like the, one of the most critically beloved films of all time, that same oh. year. Oh, was it? Yeah. In- Oh, geez. I didn't know that. Yeah, Spielberg has this weird tendency to, like, put out two movies in the same year. Um, like, you can see it a couple times over the course of his career. And a lot of the times it feel, it seems like it's, like, he makes, uh, you know, like, Jurassic Park. And then that's a movie that has a lot of special effects. So there's a long post-production. And in that post-production time, he directs another movie that's, like, simpler, like Schindler's List, which is, you know, no major special effects or anything. And then they just both end up coming out the same year, even though it's been like a three-year process to get both made. Hey, he did it with AI. I can't remember what the other movie was, though. Yeah. And I know that the year that War Horse came out, he had two movies come out. He's done it several times over the course of his career, which is kind of weird. Yeah, a little bit. Um, But yeah, so E.T., I mean, I think part of it for me is that, you know, I've always loved aliens and monsters and things like that, but I definitely gear more towards the malevolent creature. Um, And E.T., maybe even when I was a kid, just a little too cutesy for me to really become attached to. Mm -hmm. You know. I got you. The cutesiest creature I think I really got into when I was a kid was uh, Audrey, too, from Little Shop of Horrors. And she Mm -hmm. ate people. (laughs) Well, I mean, nothing surprised me about that statement, Millsy. (laughs) Um, well, at least she didn't say Mac and me, so. <laughs> yeah, no. Still have not seen Mac and me. <laughs> that that day is yet to come. Oh. Scribbles down Mac and me for a future list. <laughs> I can't, I'm a little surprised that that's not uh, on a trio of movies that we have right. written down yet. So right. Won't be surprised for long. It'll have to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Um. Good cast, uh, D. Wallace, the like epitome of moms from the eighties in movies. Oh, for sure, the mom. Yeah, especially from like horror and thriller films, because she was in The Hills Have Eyes, The Howling, Cujo, Critters. Man, uh, she's cleaning up in the moms the yeah. mom category. Love D. Wallace. Oh yeah. Um, but honestly, I think that you know, especially on this watch, the standout thing about this movie for me was the score. You know, I noticed that all all three movies have good music, mm-hmm. but man, the score in this is pretty bonkers. Yeah, the John Williams music just like it takes those moments of like the kids, you know, riding their bikes uh, through like a like a construction site in their like suburban town, being chased by like cars with you know secret ops guys in them or whatever and like that's already something that appeals to me anyway but then like that music just takes it to like another level and the 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 beats that it hits when like the bikes take off and start flying and oh yeah man the music in this movie is great i read 
I read something. I'm pretty sure it was for this one that like John John Williams like wrote a particular piece for I think it's the end like the end credits or the end scene and it was longer than the scene permitted. Mhm. So Spielberg just went and basically like reshot or like redid the editing on that <laughs> scene so it fit with the music. Nice. Which is pretty I mean it, it makes sense. I mean I really enjoyed the music on this this time like Yeah. It was like far and away a standout of the whole thing for me mm-hmm. is how good the music is. Yeah, I had watched this movie a couple of years ago. Like, um, I kind of preempted this show maybe like four or five years ago and thinking like, man, I haven't seen E.T. since I was a kid. I got to rewatch that. And so like I had this one pretty clear in my head. I, I you know, it hadn't been so long since I'd seen it. So this time, for some reason, I really focused in on the music and just thought it was great throughout. Mm-hmm. There's some really good right. themes in there. 100%. Um, I have some weird issues with the logic in this movie, kind of the same way I did with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, tell me. Um, just some things that I feel like these days, in stark contrast to what I said before about how a lot of modern movies just like leave me wanting at the end. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's also a thing that goes on these days where sometimes movies beat you over the head with exposition and explaining things. Um, A lot of times in like sci-fi movies, I feel, but uh, like, I feel like in this era when ET came out, like the seventies, early eighties, people weren't as concerned with the details. So like I can come up with reasons that are perfectly reasonable for why ET suddenly starts to die towards the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. but they never tell you. And I have to admit it annoys me a little bit that he just starts to weaken and die and turn white and they never say why. And everyone's just like, oh, he's dying. I've got to say, Mills, that going into this rewatch, something I just didn't remember was the whole like uh, telekinetic bond that E.T. has with uh, Elliot. Elliot. That's another one on my list here of weird issues that I have. Something something I do not like. I don't like it. I don't think it actually adds anything to the movie. And the whole, I'll just say that quickly, and the entire E.T. death sequence, I feel like, goes on forever. <laughs> yeah. it's like It feels like a huge chunk of the movie. So, yeah, here's my issues with this. The connection between E.T. and Elliot... I don't necessarily mind as a concept for the movie. I just don't understand why it happens. I agree. Like all of a sudden the two of them are just connected and it's like E.T. is at home alone drinking beers out of the fridge and then Elliot is acting all drunk in class because they have this connection and E.T. is watching someone dance in a movie on TV so Elliot's dancing in class. Like as a concept I don't mind it but I just don't understand the purpose of it. It makes you think that Elliot's life is in danger when E.T. is dying, like they're connected, mm-hmm. and if E.T. dies, Elliot dies or something like that. But no, when E.T. is about to die, their link between them breaks, and Elliot just gets better yeah. while E.T. Yeah. turns white and dies. I mean, they, they more or less flat out tell you if E.T. dies, Elliot dies, and then it just doesn't happen. Yeah, so it's just like, I don't know, it, it just feels like a weird cop-out or something, and it does feel almost like it doesn't belong because they never never bother to explain it. It just feels like a a cheap 
way to get some drama and tension. I mean, to be honest, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And then going right along with that, how and why does E.T. suddenly come back to life? Because he's dead. He's flatline. And I understand, you know, he's an alien. He's got different physiology. We don't understand. But, like, whether it was, like, you know, he was away from his atmosphere for too long or it turns out he's allergic to Reese's pieces or he's mm-hmm. dying of a broken heart. I don't know why, but like Elliot being sad over his body wakes him up like a fairy tale. Well, I don't know. I All I could say is, because they don't explain it, they don't even like play it up emotionally to be sure, but it seems like that, I mean, Elliot tells him he loves him and then his heart starts blinking. Yeah. And then I don't know if that's supposed to mean to that because I think Elliot soon after that says, like, you're, they're coming back or your family's coming. Well, so that I was, like, was my close? thought. Because in the beginning of the movie, like the very, very beginning, when all the little ETs are running around in silhouette, like by their spaceship, mm-hmm. one of them, I think, like walks to the top of the, the entrance to the ship and his chest glows red. And then the, all the other ones glow red and they come running back almost like that's a communication feature that they have with one another. Right. Um. So that was my thinking is like, oh, since the other aliens are coming back, that revives him. But why does it revive him that they just suddenly like send out like a text message to him that he receives in his red glowy chest? Right. And it's like he he slowly dies and turns white and then bang, he's like just back and awake and normal again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let me me tell you, before that scene, when... Elliot's brother finds him by the sewer grate or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gross. Oh, yeah. Definitely gross. Yeah. Uh, the, it's disturbing, even. The more E.T. looks like he's been dusted with powdered sugar, the more disgusting he becomes. <laughs> yes. Um, and another thing for me is, like, watching the movie, you know, it's, you know, E.T. is this cutesy little creature, and there's this ominous, like, guy whose face you never see a la like the Muppet babies and you just see mm-hmm. the keys hanging from his belt and you right. know that they're looking for E.T. and they're like bugging Elliot's house basically and sneaking in when he's not home and it gives you the sense of like oh no E.T. is in danger and even at the end you know like they're running and trying to get E.T. to his spaceship while they're being chased by guys with guns but like, when you finally get the reveal of Peter Coyote's character, who just is called Keys in the credits, um, they don't seem to have any malice towards E.T. Like, they try and revive him. And, you know, maybe right. they're going to take him and vivisect him and learn what they can from his biology. But it's only after he's dead and they spent all night trying to keep him from being dead. Right. Like, it just, it just, like, takes all the tension away. And then I don't understand why they're chasing the kid with a gun at the end. Yeah. They got, there's 37 guns are drawn. Yeah. When they find that van. Mm-hmm. You know, like even in the beginning, when they first see the guy, see the keys and all that, like, I don't feel like you get the impression that they're government agents. They seem more like hunters or something in the beginning. <laughs> I definitely get the impression that they're like a government agency or something because they're driving around in like, uh, you know, uh, sedans and they're, you know, wearing slacks and. Oh, but I mean, in the very, very beginning, like when, when in the woods. Is it that? I can't remember. I just think I remember thinking that. Or maybe I just didn't notice at the time until later, like that those same guys from the very beginning were the same ones. Mm. You know, I just 
don't know if they sold that enough for me. Yeah. But, um, like, I like the heart of the movie and, you know, what it's getting at and everything. And Yeah, same um, here. I like a lot of the playfulness and stuff. It just, um, you know, it being such a beloved classic for so many people, uh, it just, it yeah, you know, like, even when I was a kid, like I said, I, I never, like, held it near and dear. Like, I would watch it, but uh, didn't, like, love it and grow up, like, wanting to own the DVD or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still kind of feel that way. I think it's a good movie, but I think it's more important to me as a cultural phenomenon than it actually is as like a film that I enjoy to watch. Hmm. Interesting. Because even, you know, just watching it recently, it's like I like it, but I'm not yeah. gaga over it. You know, I don't feel so, the need to own a copy on my shelf. So you wouldn't say it's the best sci-fi movie of all time? Absolutely not. Would do people say that? <laughs> I think so. Hmm. But you know, it is a it is a movie. There's something for everyone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of heart. Clearly, I mean, there's like the cutesy stuff with the kids. You know, and the the little sister. Like, there's plenty to enjoy there. Actually, like I noticed this time around, I liked how the older brother. You know, it doesn't it doesn't go on too long that he's not like there to help Elliot. Yeah, I feel like when we're in other movies, it's like you know they're at odds the entire time. Yeah, he's that, not that, just antagonistic the all the time. Yeah, which I like that. I like that quite a bit. Yeah, it's like you know he gives him shit and whatever, but they do get along. And I really like that moment when uh, when Elliot like appears home and he's like all sickly and he tells the brother like he's still out there and then the brother like takes off on the bike to go find him like he has like a real sense of responsibility towards his brother and et and Mm -hmm. i like that vibe yeah i do too um young drew barrymore uh seems to be acting unlike any other child actor i've ever seen but is very fun in the movie yeah i mean great i think she's great in it yeah which might she just might be being a five year old rather than playing a five year old, but hey, it worked. It worked out in their favor. Yeah. The yeah. anecdote about her and Steven Spielberg that I always remember is, you know, he cast her in this. I believe this was her first role. Maybe I don't know if she was like one of those kids who did commercials and stuff or whatever before, but you know, it, her being in this movie and it being such a big deal and Steven Spielberg being a part of it. Uh, apparently he always like kind of viewed her as, you know, family or like a kid by proxy or something. Mm -hmm. And then when she posed a nude in Playboy magazine, Mm -hmm. I read that Steven Spielberg sent her a package and when she opened it up, it was just a blanket or like a (laughs) a towel or something and a note that said, uh, cover yourself up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I always oh, thought was funny. Oh, Steven. Yeah. One of those things where, like, I don't think she was ever in another Steven Spielberg movie, and you'd almost think, like, him, quote-unquote, discovering her at a young age, like, she'd pop up in some of his stuff in, like, the mm. 90s or something, but I guess her career took a different path. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Like I always say, those kind of fly-on-the-wall Hollywood things, you'd mm-hmm. love to hear those behind-the-scenes stories, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just a little one. Um... Some fun little trivia bits that I discovered reading about this movie before we move on. Um, So Spielberg originally pitched it to Columbia, and they turned it down, calling it, quote, a wimpy Walt Disney movie. 
Ooh, hot take. <laughs> and I guess coming off of Close Encounters, which was, you know, still, it wasn't like a horror film or anything, but it definitely had like a darker tone than E.T. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted something more akin to that. So Spielberg went to Universal Studios and said, hey, they didn't buy, they, they didn't like go forward with this. So the film is, the script is in turnaround. Like, why don't you guys buy this script and then you make it? So Universal Studios bought the script uh, for $1 million. And part of the deal is that Columbia retained 5% of the film's net profits. Oh, Jesus. And what, a, what a great deal. <laughs> the uh, I forget what his role is, but a guy named John Veitch, who used to work for Columbia, later said, I think we made more on that picture in 1982 than we did any of our films. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Which is amazing. Um. I also thought this was interesting that uh, uh, so originally the Reese's Pieces, they wanted M&M's probably just because M&M is like, you know, just the more recognizable known brand of like little candy coated, you know, confections. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mars, the people who make M&M's, refused to let them use M&M's because they thought E.T. would scare kids. And so Reese's Pieces was the second choice. And Hershey pretty much agreed right away. And then Hershey's profits rose 65% that year after the movie Ooh. came out. <laughs> Man. Big deals being made all over this movie, Milsey. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Damn. And uh, finally, I've I've heard different versions of this before, but have you heard about the uh, the sequel that never happened? Oh, no. Yeah. I feel like this is one of those things that you could always read about on Wikipedia or whatever, but then a couple of years ago, some website wrote an article about it and then everybody jumped on board and that was the first time I heard about it. Uh, So literally the month after the film premiered in theaters, Spielberg and the writer who we didn't mention, uh, Melissa Matheson, who also wrote The Black Stallion and her last film that she wrote was The BFG, which came out after her death. Okay. Um, they wrote a treatment for a sequel that was going to be called ET2 Nocturnal Fears. What the hell? Which just sounds disturbing. Um, and the premise was Elliot and his friends would have been kidnapped by evil aliens. And then the film would follow their attempts to contact ET for help. And then ET comes to help dressed up like Rambo. I, I guess so. Like, uh. Just like Gizmo. Gizmo and Gremlins too. too. Um, Oh boy. And then Spielberg decided against pursuing the film, feeling that it, quote, would do nothing but rob the original of its virginity. (laughs) I'm not sure about the wording, but good call, Spielberg. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's articles out there where you can read more in detail about, like, what the movie would have been. But it really does sound like a change in genre to, like, a pseudo-horror film. That's weird. Um, but I definitely recommend you uh, you look that up and oh, do I a little will. reading. Just that title, Nocturnal Fears. Yeah. Ugh. Like if that was a like who wants to be a millionaire question, like oh pick the the subtitle for the supposed ET two movie. <laughs> no one's picking Nocturnal Fears. Yeah. No. Good lord. Yeah. Pretty and unusual. see, and I thought the best anecdote about. E.T. was going to be that a video game was made for it so bad that they dumped every copy into a hole in the desert. <laughs> yeah, which sounds like it's made up, but that really happened. 
Yeah. Because some people found them and dug them <laughs> <Right>. up. <laughs> yeah. Some sick maniac mm-hmm. went to the trouble to find the worst game ever made. Yep. Yep. That's E.T. in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. So shall we move on to our third oh. and final film? Yes, please. Uh, all right. So we got AI, Artificial Intelligence, released in 2001. Where are we going? This way now. Are you in bad trouble? Have you run away from someone? My mommy told me to run away. Why did she say that? I guess because Henry didn't like me. Why was that? Martin came home. And who is he? Martin is mommy and Henry's real son. After I find the blue fairy, then I can go home. Mommy will love a real boy. The blue fairy will make me into one. Is Blue Fairy Mecca, Orga, man or woman? Woman. Woman. I know women. They sometimes ask for me by name. I know all about women. About as much as there is to know. No two are ever alike. And after they've met me, no two are ever the same. And. I know where most of them can be found. Where? Rouge City. Across the Delaware. Too far for our feet. We'll need help to get there. And it is not without peril. We will have to journey. Towards the moon. Uh, like me, do you kind of wish that Close Encounters was referred to as CE? <laughs> I was thinking about that, not that specifically, but uh, that it was weird that ET and AI are both in this episode. Uh-huh. But and they both have to have their those spelled out in the title, otherwise people wouldn't understand. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, at least AI is a term that people know. I would say that ET is only a term that people are familiar with because of the movie ET. See, I I read that. They they added artificial intelligence to AI because they were worried people would confuse would read it as A one. The steak sauce. Want, yeah, and they didn't want to think of steak sauce. Mm, interesting. So yeah, that's Hollywood. Yeah. All right, Mills. Mm-hmm. AI artificial intelligence two thousand one has quite the storied history when it comes to production. That it does. Break it down for the people. Well, uh, it was originally a short story called Super Toys Lasts All Summer Long, written by Brian Aldiss uh, back in the 60s or early 70s. Um, The story is very different. We can tackle that subject in a little bit if we feel the need. Mm -hmm. But um, so Stanley Kubrick, his M.O. seemed to be unlike, well, I guess, you know, Steven Spielberg gets stuff from books as well, like... uh, I mean, Jaws was a book originally in Jurassic Park, but um, Stanley Kubrick, from what I understand, by the time he became like a prestigious director who could do whatever he wanted, he was always looking for books to base movies on, like had people reading books for him and like giving him basically book reports so that he could decide if he wanted to make a movie about them. Um, Was interested in this idea, uh, bought the rights to the movie in uh, the early 70s. And one of the hangups for him, I mean, he had hangups with every fucking movie he made because it just took longer and longer for him to put a film out as his life mm-hmm. went 
because I want to say his last three films were Clockwork Orange, uh, Full Metal Jacket, and uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Are you serious? Yeah. And Clockwork Orange, 70s, late 70s, I think. Yeah. Full Metal Jacket, if I remember correctly, came out in 87. And then his next film was Eyes Wide Shut, which was 1999 after he died. Ugh. Um, so if he was going to make AI and he lived, it would probably be coming out about now. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I mean, Stanley Kubrick is a fascinating individual, whether you like his movies or not. There's a couple documentaries out there about him. One that I am a fan of, uh, I forget where, but you can watch it online for free. Uh, I think it's called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes. And I have to see that. It's a documentary, not to get too far off subject here, but... Uh, so he would get like so involved later in his career with like, um, like picking the exact perfect locations for scenes to take place and like wanting wallpaper in his sets to be exactly perfect that he would have people basically just runners go out into the streets of London or whatever and take pictures of doorways that he wanted a scene to take a place in front of. And like, they'd come back and give him all this stuff and he kept all of it. So there was like a room in his estate that was just like floor to ceiling boxes that were labeled like, you know, um, red doorways in London for eyes wide shut or something like that. And after, at some point after his death, his wife decided to donate all of these boxes to like a, a film university or something. And so the documentary is just about people going through these fucking boxes and uncovering all the crazy shit that he's got in there while trying to prepare for his movies. That is awesome. But anyway, uh, so his big hang-up with uh, AI is that he wanted David and the other robots to be CG, like Mm. specifically to make them look unusual and stand out. But, you know, for years he felt, you know, the CG technology just isn't up to snuff. And so then uh, I read it differently in different places. I read that in 1985 or 1995, Stanley Kubrick was talking with Steven Spielberg and was basically just like, why don't you make this movie and I'll just produce it? And Steven Spielberg, again, depending on what you read, said yes, but then had a bunch of other projects he wanted to do first or said, no, I think it'd be better if you directed it. And then so Stanley Kubrick dies after finishing his final edit of Eyes Wide Shut, but before it comes out. And then Mm. Kubrick's wife came to Spielberg and was like, hey, I know you guys talked about it before. I would like it if you would make this movie. And so Spielberg made it his like next goal to make AI. And interesting fact, AI is the first movie that Spielberg wrote himself alone since Close Encounters in 1977. Oh, jeez. Wow. Um, there were multiple other scripts that uh, Kubrick had commissioned from people over the years, and Spielberg based his closely off of one of them, I don't remember which, but he ended up getting the sole writing credit. Huh. Oh, it's um, Ian Watson was the name. Okay. That someone did a, uh, there's some script work there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, fascinating road to the screen. Man. And it's a doozy. You know, uh, this movie I definitely feel is divisive. Um, So it's questionable for a lot of people whether it was worth all the time and effort that it finally took to get to the screen. But um, why don't you tell me your thoughts on that? Hmm. 
Well, all right. So I think I've, before this viewing, I'd only seen the movie once. I don't think it was in theaters, but it had been probably right around that time. And I didn't, in all honesty, I didn't remember too much of it, except the very end. <laughs> which uh, That's actually the part I remembered the most as well. <laughs> yeah. For whatever reason, there's a part in like the middle section where the, I don't remember what's it called, the Flesh Farm. Flesh Fair. Flesh Fair. Um is going on and there's that one like nurse robot or nanny robot mm-hmm. that only has a face yeah. and like the whole head is like exposed in the back. I feel like that was real prominent in the trailers. Mm-hmm. Cause at that particular, there's some shots there that stick out to me. Um, regardless. So yeah, I don't remember too much of it besides the ending. Um, I enjoyed it watching it this time. I have, Quite a few issues with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard where to begin. I think there's a lot to like. Like, I think Haley Joel Osment is good. I think he's Actually, great in this. Yeah. I mean, to be the way, especially in the beginning, the way he acts, like, it feels so robotic. It's kind of like, unnerving a little mm-hmm. i mean i you, you notice within the first five minutes i was like he's not blinking yeah which is like you know crazy he's got the, and not quite a dead stare either but it just the he's got the head turns and just like these certain mannerisms where i think i read at some point that part of kubrick's thing was he wanted cgi because no actor could pull off a robotic <laughs> movements yeah, yeah. he this, said dude, that this this seven-year-old sure does it. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of times in the movie where he's meant to actually be moving robotically. Like, one is at the end when they, like, uncover him out of the ice and he first gets out of the that, mm-hmm. like, ship that he's in. Yep. Like, I'm almost wondering if they used CG to, like, mess with the frame rate or something because his robotic movements in that are so I uncanny. Think, I think in that part... That would make sense. I don't the other throughout the rest of it. No, I think it's just his acting. Yeah, I mean, I read that the uh, the main two things that he did that Steven Spielberg requested that he do to make him appear robotic is a blink as little as possible, and b always try and have perfect posture. <laughs> and like yeah. those two things were the backbone of his robotic performance, which I think is extremely strong. Yeah, like watching him it. in this makes me think like it feels like he should not be like a forgotten child actor who's only in yeah. Kevin Smith movies now. Right. I mean, I just think no one saw this movie. I think a lot of I people mean, saw it. I just think a lot of people didn't like it or didn't understand it. Yeah, I mean that's very very possible. Because I mean, like the movie made a fair amount of money. And, you know, this was a thing at the time. It came out like two years after uh, Stanley Kubrick had died. And it was Mm -hmm. this big talk of like Steven Spielberg, one of the greatest directors of all time, is making a movie like in homage to one of the other greatest directors of all time. And um, all this talk of like, is he going to try and make it like Stanley Kubrick would make it and all this stuff. And um, Mm -hmm. I I read that uh, 
there's like some critics association that did uh, a list of like the 100 best movies since the year 2000. And this was like number 33 on the list. So Hmm. I think there is a degree of appreciation out there, just not with the masses. And I do think a lot of people saw this. Okay. Because it was like a Spielberg sci-fi movie plus the curiosity of Kubrick and everything. I don't think I just, it went unseen. I just think it went unappreciated by a lot of people. Probably. I mean, my my real comment is just like no one ever talks about it. Sure. I feel like it that never is, that comes is true. up. So, sh- <laughs> so sure, it could be plenty of people saw it, but maybe like me just kind of forgot plenty of it or... Yeah, a movie that if it wasn't for this podcast, I don't. I honestly don't know if I would have ever watched it again. Because mm-hmm. like, yeah, I didn't see it in the theater, but I know I used to own this on DVD. I think I got it for like five dollars used at Blockbuster or something. Um, yeah, and I definitely watched it once, probably only once. I know that I didn't understand the ending the first time I saw it. <laughs> I mean, I definitely can think of that, like wanting to rewatch it. I even. Not too long ago, I was at the library one day, and they had like an old beat up copy of the art of AI, uh, which I took out, which was cool to see, because there is some great designs. Yeah. So back to what I was saying, you know, I have I have things I enjoy and issues with the movie. Um, now his acting is great. I I gotta be honest, Millsy, I'm just kind of like unconvinced, maybe with like his story arc, because I I don't know how like compelled I am to believe he became any more like emotional or any more a real boy or any of that versus just what he was programmed to do. Um, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure I follow. Like just that, you know, the way I want to say the movie's supposed to present to you that he maybe is a real boy by the end. Oh, I never got that. I don't, I don't, but I feel like, I don't know if that's supposed to be part of it. I don't believe so. I, I don't know. Cause I don't. Cause then that just makes me think, well, what's, what is the point? Like what are, what is being, what should I walk away with? I from think this in- personally, and you know, the thing that I definitely don't think I glommed onto the last time I watched it, which was, close to 20 years ago um but like the theme of the movie at least the way i perceive it and the thing that i really loved about it this time was like the movie's so like you know precious and whimsical and it's like a cutesy little kid wanting to be a real boy and um you know you get little bits of darkness with like the gigolo robot and yeah you know, the real world outside of this idyllic home that he lives in. But for the most part, it's like a fairy tale. But like like, the middle stretch is dark, but the the book ends. But like a lot of fairy tales, like if you ever read about like the actual original versions of different fairy tales and how fucked up they are and how like Disney-fied modern retellings of them are, um, Mm -hmm. the thing that I love about this movie is that the entire fucking journey is hopeless. And because he's a robot programmed to have the mind of a child, he just can't fucking get it. And he's just destined to fail and be miserable for his whole life. And I think that that is a, (laughs) it's a sad, but brilliant concept for a movie. And like, 
As much as I did enjoy it this time around, God, I would kill to see the Stanley Kubrick version of this. Cause like, oh, I'm sure. Like one thing that I read that um, Steven Spielberg specifically changed from the previous writer's script when he had written it for Stanley Kubrick is that uh, there were going to be actual like more sex scenes and stuff with Gigolo Joe, which obviously mm-hmm. is something that Spielberg would nix immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, God, I would love to see the darker version of Stanley Kubrick like that would push this idea that I'm talking about even further. Because it's like, you know, he wants to become a real boy. And it's just enough of a fairy tale that you you think, like, maybe it's possible, but it isn't. And he never does. And he literally, like, quote-unquote, dies. Like, his fucking batteries run out as he's trapped at the bottom of the sea, like, just staring at this thing that's never going to give him what he wants. And Mm -hmm. then he's revived, like, 2,000 years in the future, and... Even then, when he, like, slightly gets what he wants because of the futuristic technology of these robots, it's so fleeting. It's one day, and then, what, he's just going to, like, lie in bed for eternity? Like, I was satisfied that I got one day, and now I'm just, again, like a worthless piece of machinery that, like, never reached the potential that I thought I could because... I was I just had the mind of a child and couldn't wrap my head around how futile it is. I I think that's a great great premise. <laughs> I have a lot to say about that. Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> I I I appreciate I appreciate you finding all that from the movie cuz I don't get that. What? How do you the, not? The, I mean, that is a that is a great premise, but I don't feel like the movie sells that idea that you know, let's fo- just follow this hopeless robot around until he's ultimately given nothing that he wants for his programming. I don't know. I just. I mean, it's all in the veil of like a whimsical fairy tale made by Steven Spielberg, who's one of the most like mainstream family fa- friendly directors of all time. But lying underneath of it, I mean. He never can achieve his goal. His goal is something that is unattainable. It's unrealistic. And it it ends even with the the scene at the end where he gets one day with mm-hmm. his mother, but it's 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 not even real. She's not real. Like right. he ne- his his mother's been dead for 2000 yeah. years. And like his whole journey and his attempt to like find this connection between him and his mother ends with him failed dying at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're not wrong, but I just don't know if that, like, do you think that the movie has some other message or something that I'm missing? I'm or? not sure. I know. I don't, I'm not sure what the message is and I'm not sure. I don't think it was, I'm compelled to feel that that is the message that I don't even know. Like I, what, what would be your message there that, the existence, <laughs> existence is futile. Is futile. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think, the, you know, you, you don't always get what you want. And, you know, I, again, I, I would love to see the Stanley Kubrick version because I don't think his version would have that same ending. Like, I know that Kubrick's version had, like, the robots, like, the, the super advanced robots in the future mm-hmm. and everything. 
but I have to imagine that Kubrick's version would not give the impression of hopefulness the same way that Spielberg's yeah, does. I, I would have to agree. And I think what's ultimately is what bothers me is that it feels like, you know, it feels like a, a two visions. I think that that, you know, it, it almost feels it's, like an accident, but I think that that's part of the brilliance of the ending of the movie is that if you just watch the film and you don't think about it too hard, you leave feeling like, Oh, that he got what he wanted, whether you like the movie or not. But then like, just think about it for a little while. And it's so fucking dark and fucked up. <laughs> yeah. See, I don't, I don't, Millsy, I'd be compelled to know if anyone else finds it that way. Cause I feel like they want you to leave being like, Oh, he finally got what he wanted. But it's all, it's a dream, man. It's like, it's like <laughs> the matrix. It's like eating the steak in the matrix. No. I I certainly I agree with your outlook. It's not not a it, but it's just not what I got from the movie. And I don't think that was their intention. Well, I think you you what did you what did it. what did you get from it then? You personally, I well again that's me going back to the whole having a problem with it is I don't feel I never felt at any point that you know were they trying to sell me that he's like through what he's going on in his life. Is he like breaking out of this programming? Is he reaching some next level of uh, artificial intelligence? Well, let me ask like, you. No, the whole the whole time it felt like it was his programming. Whether or not that's what they were trying to get across, did you feel like he ever did? No. Exactly, which just goes further to prove my point that it's all futile and he's destined to fail no matter how hard he tries. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I don't think that was their intention. Oh, I I, don't, I, th- I, th- I think that that was Kubrick's intention. I think that was the original screenwriter's intention. I think that it was just uh, thinly veiled in happy thoughts and yeah, warm I don't, colors by Steven Spielberg. See, well, I mean, ultimately that was that would bring it down for me because I would, as you, would like to see the Kubrick version yeah. in its entirety. Because they they just, you know, his his whole mission, his whole function, and still, that's the thing, it just feels like a function. It just feels like he's, from the very, the get-go when the movie opens about his program, his love programming, mm-hmm. it doesn't, like, I'm, I don't feel invested. Or maybe this goes back to what you were saying, you're not supposed <laughs> to feel invested. He's, he's a soulless robot that gets nothing in the end. <laughs> it's... Like, I am invested in the movie. I'm not necessarily invested in David, the robot boy. It's like, I'm invested in watching, like, as an outsider, him just toil and fail. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's legitimately what I enjoyed about it this time that I don't think I got the first time. Because you would watch this movie thinking, oh, he's the main character and I'm supposed to sympathize with the main character. And you do sympathize with him because he's, you know, a little boy and everything. But I don't. But like, I think, (laughs) well, yeah, that's what I'm saying because you can't because you're an outsider viewing this thing that you cannot fully sympathize with because it's just, it's a thing that has no hope. (laughs) Millsy, you're one of the guys in the crowd at the flesh fair cheering when they that one robot gets drawn and quartered and then they dump acid on the other one yeah maybe hate these robots like oh yeah i'm not saying you're wrong i'm not uh, this is just not 
not something I got from the movie. I just I want to know then what did you get from the movie? See, I still feel like I still feel like their intent in the end was to sh- to show his journey and him getting what he wants and finally falling asleep at the end rather than just sitting there like a weirdo awake. You know, like when he finally closes his eyes at the end and sleeps. I can't remember what the line is. Like the last bit of dialogue mm-hmm. about, you know, he does he do they say something about him dreaming or whatever? But even like here's the thing. I still here's think the that's thing. their intent. If he had made himself a real boy, like he wanted to, in like this fantasy world that he's living in in his mind, because they only mm-hmm. gave him the mind of a child. At mm-hmm. that point, I feel like there could be a happy ending for the character. Because then he would have human real emotions. But like at the beginning of the movie, when he first comes to the house, he's a blank slate. And they say like, you know, when, if you decide that you want to bond with this kid and keep him as your child to like start the love software or whatever, you have mm-hmm. to say these seven words to him in this sequence. And like she, she has this blank slate of just a thing that like it's pretending to be a child, but it's so, it feels weird and it's like constantly freaking her out. Yeah. And then she says the words and he begins to quote unquote love her, but the love isn't real. The whole point of the child is to help people cope with the fact that they can't have kids or they lost a kid. And it's just a facsimile that's there, like something to hug. But David isn't really actually capable of love his programming is just telling him, I love my mom and I have to get back to her and make her happy. But it's not like a human deciding I have to do something because it's nice for somebody else or vice versa. I feel like hatred towards someone. So I want to do something bad to them. It's just programming. So the whole concept of him getting what he wants, quote unquote, at the end, like he didn't actually achieve anything. It's all a facsimile. It like he was given a false bill of goods that just satisfied some like receptor in his in his fake robot brain that says you've accomplished your goal when he accomplished nothing in two thousand years. <laughs> and I I just it's tough for me to perceive it as like oh he got what he wanted because me, it me just too. Seems I, so hopeless. I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly enough to say I like what you're saying. I just don't think that was their intent. I think that's the intent somewhere. I I think if it was not someone's intent, it was Steven Spielberg. And he tried to temper it by making it feel like a feel-good ending. And I think that's where it kind of, it's like a flaw in that it leaves people confused. Yeah. Because they leave the movie thinking one thing when that never should have been the intention all along. You know what could have fixed it even for me is if... That last scene where she falls, the mom falls asleep, the clone mom falls asleep. If instead of him just like looking like he fell asleep himself, if he just like stood there with his normal like robot blank stare and then that cut to black, you know, that would have been good. good. I'd be much more thinking that than that they went for the quote unquote happy ending. Mm hmm. I like your story. I like your angle. I legitimately Don't think that wrong. that is the intention. I think that it is muddied a bit and potentially on purpose 
by it seeming so happy at the end. But I mean, the simple fact that the only way that he could achieve this goal was to have some magic future robots come and give him like a fake experience. It's like, it's a dream. Like it's not real. It didn't happen. He didn't accomplish anything. He failed and he died and he was brought back to life just to be given the fucking stake in the matrix. (laughs) It's not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that might be, it's a negative against the movie that even with the final scene with the super robots, like they don't, they don't, not that explains the right word, but they don't add enough to think like what their intention is here. Mm -hmm. You know, like what are they trying, like if they, they mentioned that he's like the connection to the, to humans because he's, he actually interacted with real life humans, but yeah. And they're saying like, our only goal is to like make you happy. And like, yeah. I don't really fully understand why, like, right. There's just like, I think you, the way you put it best is that a lot of things, they've muddied the waters quite a bit throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, to its detriment. But, yeah. Man. But I, ju- I, I do just love that element of it. It's almost like, imagine if you sat down to watch Shaun of the Dead and you didn't know it was a zombie movie and you didn't know what the title was and you feel like you're just watching the beginnings of like some comedy film and then all of a sudden zombies start to show up and you're like, wait, what? I thought this mm-hmm. was something else entirely. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of what this movie is to me because the whole thing is under this veil of like family film. And you know, I like, I like that angle quite a bit that you're saying because it would imagine how much more interesting it would be if all the marketing was just happy go lucky boy robot and his teddy bear. They <laughs> yeah. don't even show you any of like the middle bits or the gigolo Joe or anything. Yeah, because so much of the beginning of the movie, I mean, it, you you never leave the house really in the beginning aside no. from one or two drives and then like the backyard, which you don't even realize the house has. Like you never really see the exterior of the house. Like I could have almost believed that they were in like a, a giant futuristic skyscraper up on some super high level. Like sure. it's just, sure. it feels so confined because you're just in David's little world because it's all that he knows. And then like they could have marketed the whole movie just on that. And then when they leave and you're like in the outside world and it's so like dystopian looking and there's people hunting mm-hmm. robots to murder them for fun. And, yeah. It, uh, man, I just, and it like part of the reason that I enjoy the movie, like I said, is that dichotomy and what Steven Spielberg kind of brings to it. But gosh, I just wish that we could have seen the darker streamlined Kubrick version so bad. Yeah. I think that the the dichotomy is what hurts it for me. Yeah. Like I've said, but man, this is my kind of conversation, Bill. <laughs> like I just imagine if Spielberg made a clockwork orange or something, then mm-hmm. uh uh Roddy McDowell's uh character never would have or Malcolm McDowell's character, sorry, never would have like gotten his comeuppance when he accidentally wandered back to the same house of the people he tortured at the beginning or something. Mm. Like, it's, it, like, it just feels like he would have like toned it down and scaled it back and yeah, sure. like been afraid to show the actual consequences of things or something. Like, or what, or what would Kubrick do with uh, Jurassic Park? Oh man, I don't know, but I'd love to see it. <laughs> and that's the real fucking shame when it comes right down to it. Like, I don't love all of Stanley Kubrick's films. I haven't seen all of Stanley Kubrick's films. Like, I've wanted to watch Barry Lyndon for like uh, over yeah, a decade now, but 
just the way I hear people talk about it, it just sounds like so dreary and drab. And it's like, okay, what would it really be? Three hours out of my life? Like that's some fucking Mm -hmm. torture. But I just haven't been able to build up the desire to see it. But, you know, of the stuff that I've seen by him, I like pretty much all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shame that uh, in what, what did I say earlier? Like two decades, he only made three films. Yeah. No, really. And I know that a lot of people don't like Eyes Wide Shut. That personally is one of my favorite Stanley yeah, Kubrick no, films. No. Like I like all three of the films he released in those twenty years. Yeah. I think we we bonded early on that we were like the two people that actually liked Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that movie. That's kind of the movie. Like I had seen some Kubrick films, but that's kind of the movie that turned me on to Stanley Kubrick at some point. Like even like his last three films, um, they're all unsettling. Mm-hmm. So I think that and that that uh, means a lot to me. You know, it, it sits with me a lot for those reasons. Yeah, the three of them. But I do think it's awesome that AI got made. I think it's really interesting yes. how it got made. Like in a, in some ways, Kubrick and Spielberg couldn't be more different as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to see the combination of the two. Yeah, I would like to watch a special feature on this or something and see if Spielberg would give any uh, idea of how much he tried to maybe mimic Kubrick because I couldn't see a lot of it. Like here and there, there was a shot that felt like early in the movie when David is sitting at the kitchen table for the first time and it's that down shot through that ringed light in the ceiling. Yep, yep. Things like that made me think of Kubrick or like when... Uh, when David is uh, getting changed by his father and he like turns to look at his mother through that door. That's like those like strips of glass that like make it look like there's 12 of him looking at her all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Things like that said Kubrick to me, but even in the design, I'm not sure. I don't, I read it. I don't remember the particulars, but I read something about there's several scenes where David is like, surrounded by like a halo of light that one at the dinner table is one of them Mm. there's a few more instances where they do that purposefully in the movie Mm. i don't recall but we have to be something we could look up but uh yeah yeah i see that because i do remember that being a big talking point at the time like somebody else making a stanley kubrick movie and Mm. i don't feel a lot of kubrick come through personally me neither me neither um, I don't know who, not sure who to give props to, but I do like a lot of the production design, the robot designs in this movie, mm-hmm. um, especially like the middle sections with the, I can't remember the name of the seedy town, um, that they go oh, to. Oh, uh, Rouge City, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff there looks pretty cool. I like the world. I actually liked, it's kind of subtle, but I really like how plastic they made Jude Law. Yeah, especially with his hair mm-hmm. and just his makeup and all that it was like real nice and subtle to just make him that plastic sheen. Even David, uh, they did some of that too a lot of the time as well. Yeah, I don't think it's. it's I th- I know it's the hair that does it most, especially with Jude Law, mm-hmm. where it looks like very plasticky. Yeah, I think it looks great. So. Yeah, a lot of that stuff I liked. Mm-hmm. You know, let me ask you a question, Mills. Maybe because I remember this from the first time I saw it. I was sure that 
at the end, those were aliens, not robots. That's what I thought as well, to my recollection. But I think that mm-hmm. like everybody thought that back when yeah. it came out. So I think that might have just been part of the conversation of like, isn't it weird when the aliens show up? But it is because I read a whole thing that people were like up in arms because they a lot of people were sure they were aliens because they looked like the alien from the end of Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Well, they with, just like, the don't long look limbs like and what everything. anybody would expect a robot to look like. But the whole no. idea is it's so advanced that, like, how would you ever know right. True. what they but, would become? And then I was thinking, because I was like, maybe it's just, like, watching this in standard def years ago. Because in HD, I could see, like, the circuitry and stuff a lot more. Mm-hmm. But that I also could just be mistaken for, like, you know, it's some alien physiology that we don't understand sure. that makes it look sure. all sparkly inside or whatever. Yeah. But. but that was just something I know I noticed this time I didn't before, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know if that was necessarily a great, a great call on that design because it's those, those just read alien to me more than robot. Mm-hmm. So I would have, honestly, I would have liked it to be again. I know it's 2000 years in the future and everything. They don't fill in any of the time in between how these robots came about, but that, that took away for me that 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 last time I saw it and this time mm-hmm. but you know yeah it didn't bother me too much but it is a little confusing Millsy, I have a question yeah what do you think the future is going to be like like what do you think 2142 is going to be like 2142 that's that's when this movie opens uh I imagine um, technology will just serve to push us all farther and farther apart like it already has. Okay. Where at this point, you know, you don't have to uh, leave your house to do pretty much anything anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you really want to, you can have everything you need delivered to your home. You can work from home because of the internet. You can just text people instead of ever talking to them. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think it could end up looking a little bit like something like Ready Player One, where people are just in like a virtual reality all the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when this when AI came out, I'm sure this like this you know felt, you know, like when this came out and like the Matrix or whatever, like that kind of vibe. But now, as you know, social media and smartphones and everything, like yeah, Ready Player One feels like that could be uh, the way they're going. People yeah. a lot more, even that move that like lousy Bruce Willis movie surrogates. Oh yeah. You know, like that kind of idea. Like I could see that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Like this movie supposed to like take place in 2142. Uh, the fact that cars look the way they do, like does, I don't see the connection there between like now and, uh, 142 years in the future yeah. from when the movie was made. And then, like, you know, it looks like coffee is pretty much made the same way. Like, already, mm. like, I don't, I don't know when the Keurig was invented, but if you went back, like, 20 years and you showed someone, like, you can get a coffee in a little cup and just put it in this machine and then you have a single cup serving of coffee, <laughs> that would already seem crazy. But in this yeah. movie, like, when David's making coffee, it looks pretty much just like how people have mm-hmm. always made coffee, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, that's a good point. Aside from the robots being so advanced and unbelievably futuristic, they do not give a whole lot of impression like that it's the future. Like, oh, my no. bed is shaped like an egg and has lights in it, but <laughs> Right. Even like some of the some of like the TVs and the computers don't really feel that futuristic. They feel like 
like IMAX of the period, mm-hmm. you know? It's also funny to think that, you know, in the year 2001 when this came out, that it was feasible that there would be a physical building you could go to and then pay money to get answers when really you can just pull your phone out of your pocket now and Google <laughs> anything you want. Like that oh. the whole Mr. No thing. Yeah. Yeah. Before I forget, that was a that was awesome. I had no idea that was going to be Robin Williams. Yeah. And, and Chris Rock as the exploding comedian <laughs> For robot. some reason, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Meryl Streep is the voice of the Blue Fairy. Oh, and uh, Ben that. Kingsley is the name of the or is the voice of the robot at the end. Oh, the nice. future robot. I didn't know that either. Yeah, cool. But yeah, on the whole, uh, if you had asked me, I would have said that I wasn't a fan of AI mm-hmm. uh, based on my previous viewing a long time ago. Uh, I definitely mm-hmm. feel like I've turned around on it. It's not like my favorite movie in the world, but. Right. My new revelations about the theme that I believe the movie is trying to get across uh, uh-huh. makes me much more of a fan than I was. I mean, I did, I did, I spent more of my time coming off confused by it, but I did enjoy watching it. I do actually enjoy it more now after you gave me your <laughs> hypothesis. I still uh, say that it's a pretty obvious theme in the movie. Like, you know, like I say, it's sugar-coated, but I think that that is the thing to take away from it, personally. That that uh, life is hopeless? Yeah, or at least for this robot it is. <laughs> I mean, as, in as life much... life is hopeless, just sit back and watch him. In as much as this robot does not actually have life, his life is hopeless. Mm. He's trying to have a human existence, which he never can because he's not human, and it's impossible for him to become one. So it is, by definition, hopeless for him to achieve his goal. AI2, existence is futile. <laughs> anyway. Man. Uh, are we ready to do our uh, buy, borrow, burn here? Oh, yes, please. Uh, I think I went first last time, so why don't you go first this time? <laughs> All right, well... I don't uh, outright dislike any of these movies. Um, I concur. You know, I have my issues with all of them. But uh, based not on any longstanding feelings about any of them, because like I said, I like actively disliked AI before, and I've changed my mind on that. And E.T. and Close Encounters I've always been fine with, but had issues with and never like really loved either of them. Uh, I think I would have to burn Close Encounters, borrow E.T., and buy A.I., <laughs> oh, God. which is not how I thought this was going to go before oh, I rewatched yeah. these at all. <laughs> like, I I'll was sure, just like I was sure when we did uh, Guy Ritchie movies that I was going to burn Rock and Rolla, because how can you not compare to the other two? Mm-hmm. I was sure that I was going to burn A.I., Man, but I I was even kind of dreading watching it a little bit because it's like two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. and man, I don't man. know. I was just in it this time, man. I just uh-huh. love watching that robot suffer. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Sitting down, I was like, man, I have no idea how that maniac's gonna vote this episode. <laughs> I was like, I really don't. Watching each movie, I was like, I have no idea. 
Well, I'm happy to say that we linked up on two episodes <laughs> in a row. Not on the third one. Milsey, I'm going to burn AI, borrow ET, wow. buy Close Encounters. Exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. Close Encounters for me is like well-crafted, well-acted, and it's like the perfect level of ambiguity in a genre that I love. E.T. is, while I have issues with it, is uh, there's something for everyone while having plenty of heart. And I just feel that AI has none of that. (laughs) I agree. It doesn't have heart. And that's what's great about it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I feel that E.T., um, you know, I, I would think it would be weird for people to actually claim that it is the best sci-fi film of all time. I mm-hmm. think that it is like the epitome of the family film. And I'm even though mm. I'm not a huge fan of the movie in general, yeah. like a, a huge supporter of it or anything, I think it's a good movie. And I think that I'm I'm fine calling it that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I'd agree with you 100%. You know, AI, I definitely connected with the movie in a way that I know most people aren't going to. Uh, mm-hmm. this time around mm. and I was honestly had no real recollection of his performance in the past but I was super impressed with Haley Joel Osment in this movie and like I said like after like you know in Sixth Sense he is what he is like that could have been probably been just about any kid but after seeing him in this I'm like how how did he I just mean, like drop off the face of the earth and become yeah. like a Jake Lloyd from Phantom Menace you know I don't know um, I mean, prop, props to him. There's a lot of a lot of props to be given for AI. Yeah, and I mean, I certainly come off like I'm knocking it, but there's a lot to like. And then close and a encounters, lot, a lot I'm impressed by. So. Yeah, yeah. And then close encounters. Whereas I feel that there is this like looming sense of hopelessness throughout AI that has culminated mm-hmm. in the end for me. I feel like close encounters is too like hopeful and fun of a movie to end with what I perceive to be a real shithead move downer of the husband and father of like four kids, just like not even like splitting up with the wife or getting a divorce, but he literally leaves the goddamn planet. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he destroys their house and leaves the planet. Yeah. He leaves them with just like a fucking wrecked house and all their neighbors think they're a bunch of jerkwads now. And then he's just like, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm off to see Xandar on planet bleep blorp. (laughs) See you later, earth woman. Oh man. I don't even know what else to say. besides (laughs) I love, I love this show of ours. (laughs) Uh, oh spy fi yeah spy fi there you go well done bills um so shall we go ahead and drop a little in-house info on some people oh now at the end of the show i think so so uh we've never really mentioned this before i don't even think you and i decided for sure we were going to do this until like a couple of weeks ago correct but um triple threat theater is going to run in seasons We've decided Um, seasons of 12 episodes a piece. So this being episode 12 is the last episode of season one. Like good, good short seasons, not like long, 
Walking Dead seasons that never end. <laughs> yeah. This is more like British sitcom seasons. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean when we come back, uh, it's going to start over at number one or anything. Just uh, No, sir. We're going to break them up into uh, chunks of 12. And I mean, as it is, you're already waiting three weeks in between episodes, which I think is kind of long for the typical podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not going to make you wait super long. Uh, basically, no. if you're listening to this episode the day that it releases, instead of three weeks, you're going to have to wait six weeks for episode 13. That's all. Yeah. Just a, just a few more. So basically like just waiting for two episodes instead of one. Uh, so the show, if our math is correct, uh, will be back on May 8th, 2019. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much all we really had to say yeah. on that. Um, yeah, quite frankly, people, we just, you know, we got posters to make, you know, buying ourselves a little time. Yep, catching up a little you know, bit. S- um, stocking stocking up for the people. Yep, and trying to, you know, if we, just like, uh, you know, how uh, Image Comics, so many of those books, they do six issues and then they take a couple months off while they put the trade out before they come back. It's just a way for us to put in a... Uh, a manufactured delay so that we can avoid mm. having unexpected ones. Yeah. So. We've done good so far. Yeah. Believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe it, all. but hey, oh. amazing. That's all, baby. Just a little break. Yeah. So uh, six weeks and we'll be back. Uh, shall we go ahead and find out what we'll be back to talk about in six weeks? Yes. Yes, please. Let's generate that number. Uh, we currently have 174 possible themes. Okay. 174. Milsey? Yes. Our next episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Number 70. Seven zero. Seven zero. Next episode, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to insinuate what this episode is about, but the title definitely uh, connects to some movies we talked about this episode. Fire in the Sky. Mm, look at that. Uh, Fire in the Sky. The one hint I'll give is do not expect us to actually talk about the movie Fire in the Sky. Unfortunately for you, listener, because we all know how much you love D.B. Sweeney. <laughs> yeah, that's a movie I actively would like to rewatch. I haven't seen it in a long time, but oh. not for this upcoming episode. <laughs> Scribbles down Fire in the Sky <laughs> trifecta. So Fire in the Sky, what could it be? Mm, let us know. Yeah, you have six weeks to decide. Yeah, so. take a guess, you filthy animals. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Mm. It's been a pleasure, Mills. Oh, as always, Daxberger. Thank you, sir. Thank you, dear listener. Yes, indeed. Or as listeners. <laughs> Hopefully there's more than one. Yes. So, episode 12 for Triple Threat Theater. I'm Joe Daxberger. I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.